Thanks for listening to the Secular Hubcast, a podcast made possible through a grant from the American Humanist Association. This show is a project of the Secular Hub, a Denver nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting community, altruism, reason, and education across the diverse secular community of the Front Range region. For more information and to become a member, visit secularhub.org. All right, welcome to the Secular Hubcast. I'm your host, Jesse Gilbertson. Today, we're going to be continuing our discussion of our reading of the Mueller report. This is actually part two. If you haven't heard our discussion of part one yet, you may want to stop and go back and check it out because it'll make more sense if you go in sequence. Uh, in addition, some of the stuff we refer to in part one is going to come up in part two. But as I said, I'm your host, Jesse Gilbertson. Joining me today is Chauncey. Hey, Jesse. Chauncey, welcome back to the Hubcast. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Cool. And Mr. AJ is here as well. How are you doing today? Hey, Jesse. Doing pretty good. Cool. Now, Melissa is not going to be joining us for this. Unfortunately, there was some technical difficulty. I take full and personal responsibility for that. Uh, But we lost our original recording. So Melissa is not going to be joining us for this segment. But we are actually going to be discussing Volume 2 of the Mueller Report, which I read. Now, AJ, you read Volume 1. You took us through that very well in our last discussion, our last episode. And... So now it's on me. That's right. So just to recap, something you covered was Russian interference portion of the Mueller investigation. Right. So volume one was all of the uh, Russian activities, and it also goes into the connections between the Trump campaign and different Russian entities, um, though we didn't get as much into that in in the part one discussion. Yeah, we talked about mainly the the social media interference that Russia was doing, pretending to be different American people and getting Americans to act in strange ways that benefited the Russian government and benefited Trump. And we also talked about the hacking attempts from the Russian military intelligence, successful hacking. The successful hacking. Of the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton stuff. And then we talked about different connections. We talked about a few. You said there were 108 pages. Out of of a 200-page report, 108 of those pages were detailing connections between the Trump campaign, people in the Trump campaign and the Russian government. And we we talked about the Trump Tower meeting, Right. And we talked about some other stuff with Jared Kushner. Yeah, we we went into pretty well, good so, detail on the on the tower about the the build up to it, the events of that that meeting, and then sort of how everybody left unhappy from that event. <laughs> right, but that was just one example. That was just one of example. Many. There right. was also oh the general general Flynn general Mike Flynn. He he contacted. Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, and about the Obama sanctions. Obama had in- implemented sanctions against Russia for interfering, and Mike Flynn talked to Russia. I mean, there were there were tons of these connections that we talked right. about because it was just like it went on and on and on. Right. We didn't cover a lot of them because we were running out of time, sure. and there's just like so so many. But that was that was that was what part one covered, and yeah. and basically what it came down to is what we're what we're going to discuss in a little bit is some of the results of that. Because there were some indictments and that sort of thing from the from Mueller's investigations, but there were no high level conspiracy connections between anybody in the, in Trump's orbit and Russia. There was no positive proof positive connecting those right. two. I think what the Mueller report says is that they they demonstrated that Russia believed they would benefit from a Trump presidency, and the members of the Trump uh, campaign were willing to accept documentation from the Russians, and they were willing to get that, but. They never managed to prove um, criminal conspiracy. Right. And if 
if Trump or anybody in the Trump campaign actually did receive anything useful, it never, there was no proof of it. Either they covered it up or it, maybe it didn't happen. So right. we just don't know. Right. And that covers just the first half of the investigation because I'm going to go ahead and take us back to the original order from Rod Rosenstein. So the original order from then Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, right? He issued this order that created the Mueller investigation because Sessions, who was that Attorney General, was recused at the time. So that's why Rod Rosenstein issued the order. Sorry, was Rod Rosenstein at the time the deputy or the acting Attorney General? Was this before Sessions? Sessions was installed at the time, but he was recused. Okay. So Rod Rosenstein was the deputy attorney general, and also in this instance, the acting attorney general. He was both deputy and acting in this particular department. So reading from the order here, the special counsel investigation is created to invest two things, quote, any links and or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the campaign of Donald Trump and to any matters that arose or may arise directly from the investigation. So that's what volume two of the Mueller report is all about. We're done talking about what Russia did to us. And now we're completely talking about what Trump did to obstruct justice, either by interfering with the special counsel or interfering with other people who are involved in the justice department, tampering with witnesses, all sorts of stuff like that. I have a question about that. Sure. What's your question? So does the initial order that kicked off the special counsel when the order was made, I'm guessing Trump hadn't managed to do anything to interfere at that point because the investigation hadn't started. Right. So does the initial order go into obstruction or is that something that was like added on later? So what the order says is any matters that arise or may arise directly from the investigation. It doesn't use the phrase obstruction of justice. It could be like anything. It okay. just happened to be obstruction of justice because that's the behavior that Trump demonstrated, so there, we're, which we're going to go into. So there could have been no volume two if Trump hadn't done all of <laughs> He just kept his mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. If he had just like let it run its course and not. And so we're going to get into Trump's behavior right now. All right. Thanks for explaining. But yeah, that's a very good point. If, if Trump hadn't done all this stuff, it, it would have been much shorter and there wouldn't have been a volume two. We would have only had one episode to make. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Trump. (laughs) Okay. So in this episode, we're going to cover volume two of the report. We're also going to cover the appendices because there are four, there are four appendices or appendixes at the end of the Mueller report entirely. And they have a lot of cool information in them, but we're just going to go over them kind of briefly. One of our goals with, discussing the Mueller report on the Secular Hubcast is to try and answer the question, do we think Mueller actually did his job? In terms of the order that created the special counsel, it says that Mueller was supposed to do certain things. Did he live up to that? And I think what we see in the, the appendixes answer that better than anything. So we finished volume one, all 200 pages of it, and now volume two comes right after. And the title page reads, Report on the investigation. It's a Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election, volume two of two, special counsel, Robert S. Mueller III. The first thing, of course, is the table of contents, and it's quite extensive. And I, I mentioned this in the last episode. If you read the table of contents, you basically understand what happened. One thing that's really interesting about this report is that the way it's written, it covers such a vast and complex subject, but it reiterates the important points over and over again. 
And if you read the table of contents, read the summary, then read the sections, then read the conclusion, it's almost like you read the report four times in a row, just with differing you know, levels of, of focus. Granularity. Granularity. Resolution. Different resolution, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's, it's actually, that's one thing that makes it quite easy to help understand it because it really does repeat the important stuff in enough, enough times and enough ways that makes it very easy to understand. So I'm going to start not with the table of contents, but with the introduction. Quote, beginning in 2017, the president of the United States took a variety of actions towards the ongoing FBI investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election and related matters that raised questions about whether he had obstructed justice. The order appointing the special counsel gave this office jurisdiction to investigate matters that arose directly from the FBI's Russia investigation, including whether the president had obstructed justice in connection with Russia-related investigations. The special counsel's jurisdiction also covered potentially obstructive acts related to the special counsel's investigation itself. So, so like we were saying, if, if Trump hadn't done anything in relation to this investigation, this whole section would just be like empty. Yeah. <laughs> the, this entire section is all about Trump's obstruction of justice activities. So before they get into the descriptions of that, they talk about how they ran this investigation. So there's quite a bit of stuff in, involved in that. Is it just Trump's obstruction of justice or was anybody else eyeballed as having tried to obstruct justice? Definitely. So Michael Cohen, for example, he just started a three-year prison sentence. Michael Cohen was around for a long time, but he also obstructed justice. He helped Trump. He lied to Congress and I think the FBI as well. And so that's why he's in jail. So yeah, there were other people. And so it goes into that quite a bit. Now, it's really funny because Trump ordered people to do all kinds of stuff, but a lot of people either just ignored it or they said they would help him and then they didn't follow up. And so there's there a lot of that kind of stuff where he tried to get somebody to do something, but then people wouldn't do it. And so th that's a, kind of a part of the the process. Could you describe what counts as obstruction of justice has three bullet points that have to be met? Okay. Yeah, there, I'm going to get into all that. Okay. That's actually coming right up. Cool, cool. So in the next section of the report, Mueller talks about the Office of Legal Counsel, and he refers to an Office of Legal Counsel opinion indicating that you can't prosecute a sitting president. Quote, first, a traditional prosecution or declination decision entails a binary determination to initiate or decline a prosecution. But we determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment. The Office of Legal Counsel has issued an opinion finding that the indictment or criminal prosecution of a sitting president would impermissibly undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions. And apart from OLC's constitutional view, we recognize that a federal criminal accusation against a sitting president would place burdens on the president's capacity to govern and potentially preempt constitutional processes for addressing presidential misconduct. I guess that last sort of line maybe answers the question that I was forming, but it seems like ruling out the potential of prosecuting a sitting president just sort of leaves a lot of ground open for misconduct. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if a person can't be investigated at all and they can't be prosecuted, then it puts them above the law where they would have immunity to, to do anything. Hmm. So it is a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky situation because he's saying a traditional prosecution or declination decision, you have to decline to prosecute or you have to prosecute. <laughs> In this case, because the president, the, the office of the president is special and there's this special office of legal counsel opinion about not being able to, to 
indict him. The Mueller investigation, it's frozen. It's like stuck at that point. Right. And so because they didn't actually prosecute, the White House has taken the talking point of like no obstruction, no collusion, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, Okay. Give me a second. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. So getting back to the text here, second, while the Office of Legal Counsel opinion concludes that a sitting president may not be prosecuted, it recognizes that a criminal investigation during the president's term is permissible. The opinion also recognizes that a president does not have immunity after he leaves office. And if individuals other than the president committed an obstruction offense, they may be prosecuted at this time. Given those considerations, the facts known to us, and the strong public interest in safeguarding the integrity of the criminal justice system, we conducted a a thorough factual investigation in order to preserve the evidence when memories were fresh and documentary materials were available. All right. So I think one thing that maybe stood out to me is that it sounds like prosecution of the president can happen after they left office, Mm -hmm. but there's no kind of translation of the statute of limitations to where it kind of starts up after the president leaves office. If the statute of limitations would expire in four years and the president were in office in four years, then they are basically free from being prosecuted of that crime outside of impeachment. Right. I don't know what the statute of limitations is on the stuff he did. I think, I think it's more than four years, but I think if he were elected to a second term, then then it would expire. I've, I've heard that in the media, but I haven't looked it up myself. And so it sounds like it's really up to the political process to hold a president accountable during their term. Right. Yeah, it's it's a political thing. You're talking about impeachment in the in the Congress. Because the the report refers to that when it says they didn't want to indict because that might quote potentially preempt constitutional processes for addressing presidential misconduct. So it, it's like they the Mueller investigation they decided that it wouldn't make sense to try and indict and have the Congress also indict, like through a that you know it would be it would be awkward to have them both going at the same time, and so and so another point that that brings up is just the nature of our political system and our our two party system and how polarized we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we get into the discussion about the results of the Mueller, it'll make a lot more sense to kind of discuss that at the end because the Mueller report didn't come up with anything that could be used to get Trump out of office. In and of itself, like it wasn't. It, it seems like pretty. That's what he they're establishing right now in this part that of the report that I'm sharing. There's nothing. It doesn't have the power to do anything to Trump. So the next thing, if there is enough evidence in here to indicate that Trump has done something that where he shouldn't be president anymore because he broke too many crimes or obstructed justice too hard or whatever, then it, it becomes a political process because that's what. Um, I mean, that's what impeachment is. It's a political thing. It's not like some revelation of truth and like ultimate truth will force the president out. That's not how it works. It's a totally political thing. You know, if you haven't read your constitution recently, impeachment starts in the House of Representatives, which is controlled by the Democrats. But the leader of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, has indicated she's not interested in in impeachment, even though there are some in her party who are pushing for it at this time. But it's not a clamor or anything. And it would be kind of pointless because once the South... House of Representatives starts it, it goes over to the Senate for the trial. And the Senate is controlled by the Republicans and specifically by Mitch McDonald. Mitch McDonald? McConnell. McConnell. McConnell, thank you. Listen, Colorado is really awesome. If I was going to move somewhere, I would move to Kentucky so that I could vote against Mitch McConnell. Like, I really dislike that person. Yeah. Uh, and there's no way, I mean, he, he'll stand up for Trump forever. He'll, he, so if there was an impeachment right now, it would go nowhere. Uh, it would, 
you might even who knows who knows what would happen if right. the, if the Republicans were in charge of there's investigating. Been a, there's been a lot of talk about how uh, the imp- impeachment of Bill Clinton actually bolstered him for his second uh, election, right? Yeah, and it would yeah it would give Trump lots of ammunition on the campaign trail and stuff. So right. yeah, I think for various reasons impeachment is not going to happen at this time. I don't know what would happen. It would be really unpredictable as to what would take shape. <laughs> and it might very much help Trump. You never know. Now, the Mueller report goes into a little more detail on the rationale for why they didn't. Quote, third, we considered whether to evaluate the conduct we investigated under the justice manual standards, but we determined not to apply an approach that could potentially result in a judgment that the president committed crimes. Fairness concerns counseled against potentially reaching that judgment when no charges can be brought. The ordinary means for an individual to respond to an accusation is through a speedy and public trial with all the procedural protections that surround a criminal case. An individual believes he was wrongly accused can use that process to seek to clear his name. In contrast, a prosecutor's judgment that crimes were committed but that no charges will be brought affords no such adversarial opportunity for public name clearing before an impartial adjudicator. So I think that indicates their good faith effort on the part of the Mueller team not to like slander the president. Because they're saying, like, look, we can't we can't put charges here because we can't indict. And if there's no indictment, then the president can't clear his name. He can't offer counter countervailing evidence that would prove his innocence. So it's it's kind of a weird thing. It's like the process went forward, but it stopped at a certain point because the president's office is special and it's just kind of stuck there. But this is how they wrap up their introduction. Quote, fourth. If we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, however, we are unable to reach that judgment. The evidence we obtained about the president's actions and intent presents difficult issues that prevent us from conclusively determining that no criminal conduct occurred. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. So this is, it's already getting super complex because... They investigated, but it doesn't matter what they found out because they can't indict because the president wouldn't have a chance to clear his own name. However, they can't say that he was, they can't exonerate him. They can't say that the evidence keeps him, you know, keeps him safe or gets him out of hot water there. So it's, it's kind of a weird situation. Can you read that for me one more time? Sure. If we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, however, we were unable to reach that judgment. The evidence we obtained about the president's actions and intent presents difficult issues that prevent us from conclusively determining that no criminal conduct occurred. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. Okay, so if he were exonerated, they could say that he was exonerated. But it sounds like this may be as strong a statement as they could make even if he committed a bunch of crimes. (laughs) Right. Is that right? Okay. Uh, yeah, that's that's how I read it. Yeah. Okay. Right. So it's like we can't say he's guilty, but we are saying that he's not innocent. <laughs> no. Or <laughs> like they they don't. There's nothing that proves his innocence. Uh, so it's it's not like you know some villain did it, and you could put all the blame on the villain. It's like there's crimes, and we can't put it on anybody. And there's this one person that we can't we can't blame him one way or the other. <laughs> so these crimes are just hanging out. And we can't exonerate the president. So, yeah, they're, they're trying to say something without actually being able to say it. 
And sorry, so this is in the second portion of the report. So is that statement specifically with regards to obstruction of justice? Yes. Or is that statement also with regards to conspir- Russian conspiracy? Yeah, this part doesn't really refer to any investigation about connections conspiracy. These statements are only about the obstruction of justice, the stuff that happened afterwards. Okay. So that takes us to page three of the report. <laughs> now, this is the executive summary. Now, if you're pressed for time, just read the executive summary because it covers pretty much everything. So I'm going to take it part by part. So there were a number of different actions in different areas with different people where Trump's behavior could indicate likely obstruction of justice type violations. So there were these were the key areas. Quote, the campaign's response to reports about Russian support for Trump, conduct involving FBI Director Comey and Michael Flynn, the president's reaction to the continuing Russia investigation, the president's termination of Comey, the appointment of a special counsel and efforts to remove him, efforts to curtail the special counsel's investigation, efforts to prevent public disclosure of evidence, further efforts to have the attorney general take control of the investigation, efforts to have McGahn deny that the president had ordered him to have the special counsel removed, conduct towards Flynn, Manafort, and Redacted, and finally, conduct involving Michael Cohen, so as you can see, there were many areas of investigation. Doesn't the president have lawyers who should be counseling him against doing these things? He has lots and lots of lawyers. They give him lots and lots of different types of counsel. And in fact, some of the lawyers come up in the investigation. Okay. <laughs> so right. yeah, he's surrounded by like an army of lawyers. Absolutely. I'm wondering if they should be fired or if he is just re- like ignoring their counsel. I think it's a little bit of both. Like I, in the list I just read, one of the one of those items was efforts to have McGahn deny that the president had ordered him to have the special counsel removed. So McGahn was the White House counsel. He was the, one of the top, the top lawyer at the White House at the time. Not Trump's lawyer, but the White House lawyer. And so he came up in the investigation. There were lots of other presidential lawyers who came up, including Michael Cohen was one of them. And lawyers who were talking after Michael Cohen was out, Trump's lawyers were talking to Michael Cohen. I mean, yeah, it goes on and on. So yeah, there were an army of lawyers. I was going to ask how many how many total counts are we sort of interested in in volume two? I wasn't counting that overview there, but it sounded like about. I don't know what eight, you mean by counts. I like different separate incidents different that they threads were. Of investigation. Yeah, it looks like there were like almost a dozen. Okay, about eleven or so. Different different areas of investigation. Gotcha. Thanks. Yeah. the The executive summary ends with another conclusion. Quote, because we determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment, we did not draw ultimate conclusions about the president's conduct. It's almost word for word the earlier conclusion. Uh, and like I said earlier, this, this report sort of comes in cycles and it reiterates a lot of points. But I think it's worth noting that on page two, they indicate that the report doesn't exonerate the president. And again, on page eight, they make the same reference to the fact that this report they can't make a prosecutorial judgment whether he committed crimes or not, but they definitely can't exonerate him. This is taking a step a bit back, but I, I can sort of understand and appreciate some of the reasons for why they wouldn't do that, why they wouldn't make a prosecutorial sort of decision. But I find it interesting that the president still sort of retains the bully pulpit and is actively using it to in some instances, misinform the American people about the results of the investigation. 
and in others just to kind of put a narrative out there that contradicts, in some cases, the investigation or just creates a new kind of story surrounding innocence or guilt or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. The presidential, the position of president is an extremely powerful one. There's no question. And so there is, there is no such discretion happening in the executive branch, or at least at the presidential level, as, as is happening on, by the special counsel's team. You know, they're being very cautious about <laughs> yeah. not uh, overstepping their bounds and trying to be fair. The president seems to be doing nothing of the sort. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. The president does not care about that stuff. He just wants to win. It's like an exercise of power. He's not trying to adhere to any standards of professional conduct or anything like that. No, not at all. So actually, AJ, I want to, the next section is going to answer a question you had earlier about the three different elements of obstruction of justice. Right. So, quote, legal framework of obstruction of justice. Three basic elements are common to most of the relevant obstruction statutes. One, an obstructive act. Two, a nexus between the obstructive act and an official proceeding. And three, a corrupt intent. So then it goes into the, into what they are. And this, the next sections are actually really interesting to read because it's like a quilt or a, a, this, this paragraph, the words and the lines in it are made up of a bunch of different statutes, laws, and the decisions from different court cases from the past. And they've all been kind of stitched together to give you the rationale for what the special counsel was investigating. So this, this says, this is the theory of law that they're using to investigate and, and how they're operating. Quote, Obstructive Act. Obstruction of justice law reaches all corrupt conduct capable of producing an effect that prevents justice from being duly administered, regardless of the means employed. An effort to influence a proceeding can qualify as an endeavor to obstruct justice, even if the effort was subtle or circuitous, and however cleverly or with whatever cloaking of purpose it was made. Interesting. An improper motive can render an actor's conduct criminal even when the conduct would otherwise be lawful and within the actor's authority. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's it for obstructive acts. Because I think? guess just what I'm thinking about, the Justice Department's rationale for not allowing a sitting president to be indicted or suggesting that a sitting president shouldn't be indicted, I think had to do with some of the president's behavior possibly being within the scope of their normal duties. And it sounds like, according to what you just said, that kind of doesn't matter when it comes to the definition of. Well, if he was if he was doing if he was exercising his normal powers, but the reason was to obstruct justice to mm-hmm. impede justice from happening, then it would be an obstructive act, even if it's within his power. Okay. Yeah, this is this is really tricky because you're talking about intent, and intent is happens inside the person's skull. It happens between their ears, and you can't look in there. You have to use indirect methods or you have to use their statements or you have to use inference and you have to try and reach that threshold of legal proof beyond a shadow of a doubt without some kind of hard evidence. You know what I mean? So I think that's part of why this investigation was so tricky is because so much of it has to do with that. So when we hear things like obstruction of justice, we all have this like layman's concept of like what that means, but hearing these like quotes and, and, well laid out statements sort of leaves me thinking that you know there there are specific qualifications for each of these things that from the outside we might think like yeah that's obviously obstruction but maybe there's like you said nuance to it or like yeah. actual legal framework that they need to follow precedent yeah. and different 
guidelines from the Justice Department. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Um, they, yeah, they have to follow the law. They have to demonstrate. So corrupt conduct capable of producing an effect that pre- prevents justice from being duly administered. Like you have to show that and demonstrate it. So that's the first element of an obstruction of justice investigation. The next is, quote, nexus to a pending or contemplated official proceeding. Obstruction of justice law generally requires a nexus or connection to an official proceeding. The government must demonstrate a relationship in time, causation, or logic between the obstructive acts and the proceeding or inquiry to be obstructed. An official proceeding need not be pending or about to be instituted at the time of the offense. Although a proceeding need not already be in progress to trigger liability, a nexus to a contemplated proceeding still must be shown. The nexus showing has subjective and objective components. As an objective matter, a defendant must act in a manner that is likely to obstruct justice. The endeavor must have the natural and probable effect of interfering with the due administration of justice. As a subjective matter, the actor must have contemplated a particular foreseeable proceeding. A defendant need not directly impede the proceeding, rather, A nexus exists if discretionary actions of a third person would be required to obstruct the judicial proceedings if it was foreseeable to the defendant that the third party would act on the defendant's communication in such a way as to obstruct the judicial proceeding. So, as you can see, there are many ways to to demonstrate a nexus between a person's behavior and an act that's obstructive. It doesn't actually need to be obstructive. You can hint to a third party. Like there's so many ways to do it, but it's yeah. it gets really complex and really abstract really quickly. Yeah, yeah. The verbiage there got a little sort of dense for me. I know, <laughs> but it's very. But I think you summarized it well. That like it, this part, a nexus doesn't have to be as like the nexus doesn't have to be as concrete. It can be a lot of sort of there. There, there can be a lot of ways to demonstrate that. There's there's a lot of ways to do it. Yeah. All right, so that's those are the first two elements. First, there's an obstructive act. Second, there's a, a nexus to a pending or contemplated official proceeding. And the third one is corrupt intent. Quote, the word corruptly provides the intent element for obstruction of justice and means acting knowingly and dishonestly or with an improper motive. To act corruptly means to act with an improper purpose and to engage in conduct knowingly and dishonestly with the specific intent to subvert, impede, or obstruct the relevant proceeding. The term corruptly means acting with an improper purpose, personally or by influencing another. The requisite showing is made when a person acted with an intent to obtain an improper advantage for himself or someone else, inconsistent with official duty and the rights of others. So that's corruption. Have you ever heard had heard corruption defined in those ways, Chauncey? I don't know that I had. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, well, this was the standard that they were using. Now, this is kind of a little bit left field, but it occurs to me that when you're in the legal profession and you know these terms, it probably compels you to think about things in a slightly different way. <laughs> yeah. I'm always sort of fascinated by how our language influences the way we, that we interpret or view things. So um, this is just sort of one example of that where we're being exposed here to these very specific rigorous definitions for these terms that we may not think about that often in normal conversation. But when you have that in the back of your mind, it may help you think more clearly about these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's I think what I was sort of thinking earlier about how we all have these concepts in our head about what conspiracy or interference or whatever might mean just as a layperson, but you do think about these things differently when there's like a rigid structure and a definition about what that 
actually means. Cool. So a special type of obstruction of justice is called witness tampering. So more specific provisions prohibit tampering with a witness, making it a crime to knowingly use intimidation or corruptly persuade another person or engage in misleading conduct toward another person with the intent to influence, delay, or prevent the testimony of any person in an official proceeding or to hinder, delay, or prevent the communication to a law enforcement officer of information relating to the commission or possible commission of a federal offense. So that seems like it's very well defined. It goes on a little bit more. To establish corrupt persuasion, it is sufficient that the defendant asked a potential witness to lie to investigators in contemplation of a likely federal investigation into his conduct. The persuasion need not be coercive, intimidating, or explicit. It is sufficient to urge, induce, ask, argue, give reasons, or coach or remind witnesses by planting misleading facts. Corrupt persuasion is shown where a defendant tells a potential witness a false story as if the story were true, intending that the witness believe the story and testify to it. It also covers urging a witness to recall a fact that the witness did not know, even if the fact were actually true. Corrupt persuasion also can be shown in certain circumstances where a person with an improper motive urges a witness not to cooperate with law enforcement. So that's very interesting. It's really nice that witness tampering is so well defined. And this is the same definition for witness tampering that like every court follows, right? Well, this is, yeah, this, I mean, this, what I'm sharing with you now is, is the Mueller report investigated and, and looked at the legal's code, the, the U.S. code that defines it. They also looked at relevant case law where people were fighting in the court and the court made a decision and said, this is what the law means. This is the interpretation of it, which holds the same power in our system. Okay. Precedent was set through. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that's what a lot of these quotes, a lot of these definitions I'm sharing here came from other court cases. Do you know if there are any folks who have put together sort of a scorecard? So there are very specific points for all those different definitions. And it seems like for each of the 11 or so different potential obstruction of justice incidents that are outlined in that report, mm-hmm. you could sort of check off each one of these to see if they apply. Do you know if anybody's done that? Yes, I do know, Johnson. Okay, excellent. The Mueller investigation did that. Okay, they like, but all right, perfect. <laughs> Actually, that's the very next part because we're we're only up to like eleven in volume two. The next about one hundred and forty pages do that. Okay. So they go into the different threads of the investigation, which I'm just going to cover again really quickly. So those were the campaign's response to reports about Russian support for Trump, conduct involving FBI Director Comey and Mike Flynn, the president's reaction to the Russia investigation, the president's termination of Comey, the appointment of a special counsel and efforts to remove him efforts to curtail the special counsel investigation, efforts to prevent public disclosure of evidence, further efforts to have the attorney general to take control of the investigation, efforts to have McGahn deny that the president had ordered him to have the special counsel removed, conduct towards Flynn, Manafort, and Redacted, and conduct towards Michael Cohen. So of the 170-something pages of Volume 2, about 140 of those pages go into each of those sections. They say... This was the obstructive act. This was the nexus to a pending or contemplated official proceeding. And this was the corrupt intent. And they say, here's the emails. Here's the guy's testimony. Here's the, here's what she said. Here's what he said. And they, they stitch it all together into a narrative form. So you can look at each one. And as far as, like you said, there's kind of a scorecard. I don't think the Mueller report really does that. Because it just kind of lays them out in sequence. So it, it follows kind of a chronological sequence. So 
when Obama was still president, this is what Trump was doing <laughs> that was obstructive. And during the transition period, this is what was he did that was obstructive. And, you know, after the special counsel, you know, it so it kind of follows in sequence. It doesn't necessarily say which is stronger or which is weaker. And there are definitely some are much stronger and others much weaker in terms of the different threads, for sure. Okay. So for each of the three criteria, as we go through the different sections of the report, detailing each of the 11 different kind of areas of obstruction, it gives a narrative description of how those three criteria may or may not be satisfied. And you're saying that some are satisfied to a stronger extent, some to a weaker extent. Mm -hmm. There's interpretation that's left there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely left up to the discretion of the reader. And and, uh, when there's evidence in favor of Trump doing something, you know, some kind of wrongdoing, he says it. But when there's factors that mitigate, he that information is also included. So it's like the report isn't only bad information for Trump. It's that, you know, especially on some of the counts. And I, we don't really have time to go into each one of them point by point by point and <laughs> talk about, you know, the obstructive act and the nexus and the corrupt intent. Like that would make this episode an extremely long one. I've got 15 hours, Jesse. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> oh, man, that would be a, an in- installment 10 of part two. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, Due to the limitations of our podcast schedule, we obviously can't go into all the different 11 threads of the investigation and talk about them point by point. I did want to talk about one of the stronger ones, because in my opinion, some of the areas of investigation produced stronger evidence of potential of obstruction of justice, and some of them did not. So the events leading up to and surrounding the termination of FBI Director Comey, I think, to me, are pretty persuasive that there was some... some uh, the, an intent to commit obstruction of justice. So the first thing I want to cover is just a little bit of a timeline, just so that you know kind of where we are. On March 20th, 2017, Comey announces authorization of FBI investigation into Russian interference. So this was before the special counsel was set up. Comey was still the FBI director. And this is the first time he publicly announces that there is an investigation between Russia and, tr- and the Trump campaign. But Trump himself is not personally under investigation. So that's March 20th, 2017. Then on May 3rd, Comey appeared before Congress. In his testimony, Comey declines to say what's going on in the investigation. He also says nothing about whether Trump is being investigated or not. Prior to this, Trump had been leaning on him heavily to come out with a public statement that Trump himself was not personally under investigation. And when Comey had the chance to do that before Congress, he didn't say it. So then two days after Comey was before Congress, Trump drafts a letter firing Comey. That's May 5th, 2017. So then they take the weekend, they review the letter, they they think about it a little bit. And on May 8th, the Department of Justice letter firing Comey is delivered to the White House. So what happened is Trump cooked up a letter saying that he was going to fire Comey. And he went to his lawyer and to Jeff Sessions, who's the attorney general. And he said, I'm going to fire Comey. And so, and so Jeff, Sesson, Jeff Sessions, who was the attorney general at the time, said, hold on, let's write a letter for you. So Rod Rosenstein, over the weekend, Rod Rosenstein creates a letter that says, we're going to fire Comey because of his mishandling of the investigation into Hillary Clinton and because he came out before the election and made that statement reopening the investigation he was playing politics 
Jeff Sessions signed off on it, and it went back to Trump, who then added a letter. So that's that was over the course of three days. Trump writes a letter, then Rod Rosenstein writes another letter saying the same thing, gives it to Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions gives it to the president. And then on May 9th, 2017, Trump buyers call me. Mm. Then two days later, Trump does an interview with Lester Holt, where he says, quote, and in fact, when I, de- when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. Probably, maybe, will confuse people. When I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election that they should have won. If It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election that they should have won, end quote. So it's very, it's, it's, it shows to me a very direct evidence. Comey didn't do what Trump wanted him. Then he, he did all these machinations to conceal the fact that he wanted to fire him. Then he came out in public saying that the Department of Justice wanted to fire him. Then he went on the Lester Holt interview and contradicted himself and said that he was going to fire him either way. And it was six days after that Lester Holt interview on May 17th, 2017, when Rod Rosenstein appoints the special counsel. So that's kind of the the timeline. So I'm going to just refer to the special report here again. Quote, Comey was scheduled to testify before Congress on May 3rd, 2017. Leading up to that testimony, the president continued to tell advisors that he wanted Comey to make public that the president was not under investigation. At the hearing, Comey declined to answer questions about the scope or subject of the Russia investigation and did not state publicly that the president was not under investigation. Two days later, on May 5th, 2017, the president told close aides he was going to fire Comey, and on May 9th he did so, using his official termination letter to make public that Comey had on three occasions informed the president that he was not under investigation. The president decided to fire Comey before receiving advice or a recommendation from the Department of Justice, but he approved an initial public account of the termination that attributed it to a recommendation from the Department of Justice based on Comey's handling of the Clinton email investigation. After Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein resisted attributing the firing to his recommendation, the president acknowledged that he intended to fire Comey regardless of the DOJ recommendation and was thinking of the Russia investigation when he made the decision. So I remember you saying earlier, three basic elements. Okay. Right? Hit me. It needs an obstructive act. Okay. Which is firing the director of the FBI. Sure. You need um, a nexus to the obstructive between the obstructive act and an official proceeding, mm-hmm. which would be the FBI investigating Trump in Russia and Trump firing the director of the FBI. Okay, and so that sounds like a nexus to me and corrupt intent. Which, if Trump had kept his mouth shut, maybe we would write it off as like covering his political reputation or something. But saying that he was going to fire Comey regardless because of the Russian investigation sounds i mean i could go back and reread the definition of corrupt but that sounds corrupt to me yeah yeah that's why to me this example like this branch of the investigation is one that's why i picked this one to me it seems like dead simple yeah i agree i mean maybe it's not even the best one i mean maybe his handling of michael cohen i mean there was literally he was like (laughs) but yeah i mean i it's pretty simple like you and you laid it out right there I do want to also emphasize that I'm giving you a very stripped down version 
there are multiple people who will testify to multiple different aspects of Trump's behavior. Like that whole weekend, like there were people taking notes, there were people sending emails, like there's lots of different types of, of documentation of what was taking place. So, so that's not just based on his one interview on Buster Holt. No. That's like a lot of other documentation leads to that conclusion. Absolutely. Okay. And every one of these branches of investigation has all of that stuff laid out. So for me, there's a great amount of evidence that obstruction of justice took place. Chauncey, what do you think? What do you think of all this? I've been saying, throwing a lot of stuff out, reading a lot of quotes and stuff. How does it hit you? I guess my only question about the three sort of points of obstruction of justice for this particular instance have to do with the last one, the corrupt intent part. And I might have to kind of reread the definition of corrupt, corrupt intent to know for certain. But if the president truly believed that he were innocent, what would the corrupt part of it be? Because in his view, he may just be saving the American people, the money of the investigation and the distraction of it. Maybe. I mean, that's certainly one way that you could explain it or spin it away. But another thing that is emphasized is a lot of people, a lot of it is advisors, lawyers, and political advisors. A lot of people told him, just let the, just let the investigation go. If there's nothing there, just let the investigation go. Like, don't act on it to alter its trajectory or to slow it down. Just let it take place. But over and over again, he could not help himself. He had to, he tried to get Sessions to unrecuse, which is not even a thing. It's a made up process. You know, he, he like vaguely threatened Michael Cohen's family, indicating that they might uh, <laughs> be criminals and, and might face some kind of prosecution. Uh, he tried to get Sessions to launch an investigation into Hillary Clinton. He did over and over, he did all this stuff. And so I think for me, the, the three elements of obstruction of justice are present. But the thing is, a lot of, a lot of the people working for him, like his lawyer McGann, at one point, he, he was going to resign. Jeff Sessions, at one point, like before he was fired, he, read, he wrote a resignation letter months before while he, was, he and Trump were still <laughs> working together. You know? And so for the vast majority of the time that Sessions was employed as the attorney general, Trump and Sessions had this toxic, dysfunctional relationship where, <laughs> where they weren't talking to each other. And Trump was like abusing him on social media and going up. In press interviews, he was just saying horrible stuff about about Sessions to try and get him to to do what he wanted to do. Mm. For me, the evidence is really strong. Like okay. I, I feel like the second half of the Mueller report, volume two of the Mueller report, indicates many times where Trump did a lot of bad stuff that could definitely be crimes, could be obstruction of justice crime. Yeah, I'm definitely not disagreeing that he did some things that are highly questionable and maybe should be illegal if they aren't illegal. Well, um, I, I think they are illegal, but as, as Mueller said in the early part of the mm -hmm. part two, like they can't prosecute him because of this office of legal counsel. Opinion. Yeah. So just going back to how we were talking a little bit earlier about definitions and how they can be kind of elucidating. It seems like they can also be somewhat limiting. Um, it seems that someone who was self delusional enough to not recognize their own corruption can yeah. technically not meet the definition, <laughs> even though they are as corrupt as anybody else, you know? Okay. So uh, I'm yeah. just sort of throwing that out there. Like mental illness as a form of defense. Right. <laughs> like the voices of my head told me it wasn't obstruction. I think that's really all I want to kind of go into for that because. That's what the Mueller report does. It says, here were the different branches of our obstruction of justice investigation, and here's the evidence. But they can't 
because of this stupid rule from the Office of Legal Counsel, they cannot indict the president. And it's an interesting point because that's not in the Constitution. It's not in a law. It's literally 30 or 40 years ago, the Office of Legal Counsel, which is part of the Department of Justice, issued this opinion. And that's what's preventing, that's what prevented Robert Mueller from indicting in the first place was this opinion, not the Constitution, not anything else. And his own sense of fairness and not wanting to, <laughs> not wanting to accuse the president in a way that the president didn't ha- wouldn't be able to make a defense. Uh, I just looked up out of curiosity what the statute of limitations is on obstruction of justice. Okay, and it says in state courts it's usually six years, and in federal courts it's usually five years. Okay, though it varies depending on the type of crime. Thank you for checking that out. Yeah. So yeah, so five years, five years in federal, and if the obstruction happened, for example, in like. May 2017, yeah, that would expire in his second term. Supposing he gets one. So, yeah. Supposing he gets one. If he's only a one-term president, he could face justice. If he's two terms, the statute of limitations is definitely going to expire. Right. <laughs> okay. Good to know. I'm just wondering aloud who who reopens the investigation. Is it, Does it just sort of stay open until his term ends? Does somebody have to reopen it? And then is is that a political decision? Is it a decision made independently by the justice department and, and at what level, because it, it could be politically problematic to have um, a next administration reopen that sort of investigation. Yeah. You if it's right. discretionary. Yeah. Politics is rough. We talked about that a little bit earlier because when you're at this level, it's all, it's all political. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no objective measure of justice. That's Trump. I think will go to any lengths to, protect himself and to protect his family and so if the politics aren't there to prosecute him he won't be prosecuted if the politics aren't there to impeach him he won't be impeached my opinion is that he's going to finish his his first term and that'll be it like we'll have to uh, vote him out like there has to be and there have to be a big enough margin so that he can't like say it was rigged you know if it's like Mm -hmm. a, a landslide election that votes trump out and votes a new the Dem- whoever the Democrat is in, then it'll be a little safer. If it's really close, then there'll be room for him to be like. Maybe he'll really gym. surprise us and say it was the Russians who did it. <laughs> who? Maybe if the election's really close and he loses, he'll really surprise us and say it was the Russians who <laughs> hacked it. Well, the crazy thing is, is it could be the Russians. Like I think the Russians would do whatever. Like they don't love they don't love Trump. He's just a useful tool. If they could like cast him out and pick somebody even more easily controllable or more chaotic to be in. They would totally do that. That's my opinion. I think you're right. Yeah. That's all I really want to talk about for, for the investigation obstruction stuff. Okay. It's cause it kind of, it, it's just like you were talking about in volume one, the connections between the Trump campaign and Russia go on and on and on. Well, the stuff Trump did to try to obstruct the investigation of the special counsel and to do other things went on and on and on <laughs> and, and there's a lot to know about it yeah. and we can really spend a lot of time on yeah. it but the next thing I want to do is jump down to the conclusion quote although this report does not contain a traditional prosecution decision or declination decision the evidence supports several general conclusions relevant to analysis of the facts concerning the president's course of conduct three features in this case render it atypical compared to the heartland obstruction of justice prosecutions brought by the department of justice First, the conduct involved actions by the president. Some of the conduct did not implicate the president's constitutional authority and raises garden variety obstruction of justice issues. Other events we investigated, however, draw upon the president's Article II authority. 
if you haven't read your constitution recently, Article 2 just lays out the presidency, the office of the president, what his powers are. Other events we investigated, however, drew upon the president's Article 2 authority, which raised constitutional issues that we address. A factual analysis of that conduct would have to take into account both that the president's acts were facially lawful and that his position as head of the executive branch provides him with unique and powerful means of influencing official proceedings, subordinate officers, and potential witnesses. Second, many obstruction cases involve the attempted or actual cover-up of an underlying crime. Personal criminal conduct can furnish strong evidence that the individual had an improper obstructive purpose or that he contemplated an effect on an official proceeding. But proof of such a crime is not an element of an obstruction offense. Obstruction of justice can be motivated by a desire to protect non-criminal personal interests, to protect against investigations where underlying criminal liability falls into gray areas, or to avoid personal embarrassment. The injury to the integrity of the justice system is the same, regardless of whether a person committed an underlying wrong. In this investigation, the evidence does not establish that the president was involved in an underlying crime related to Russian election interference, but the evidence does point to a range of other possible personal motives animating the president's conduct. These include concerns that continued investigation would call into question the legitimacy of his election and potential uncertainty about whether certain events, such as advance notice of WikiLeaks release of hacked information or the June 9, 2016 Trump Tower meeting, between senior campaign officials and Russians could be seen as criminal activity by the president, his campaign, or family. Third, many of the president's acts directed at witnesses, including discouragement of cooperation with the government and suggestion of possible future pardons, occurred in public view. While it may be more difficult to establish that public-facing acts were motivated by a corrupt intent, the president's power to influence actions, persons, and events is enhanced by his unique ability to attract attention through use of mass communications. And no principle of law excludes public acts from the scope of obstruction statutes. If the likely effect of the act is to intimidate witnesses or alter their testimony, the justice system's integrity is equally threatened. Although the events we investigated involved discrete acts, example, the president's statement to Comey about the Flynn investigation, his termination of Comey, and his efforts to remove the special counsel, it is important to view the president's pattern of conduct as a whole. The pattern sheds lights on the nature of the president's acts and the inferences that can be drawn about his intent. Our investigation found multiple acts by the president that were capable of exerting undue influence over law enforcement investigations, including the Russian interference and obstruction investigations. The incidents were often carried out through one-on-one -on -one meetings in which the president sought to use his official power outside of usual channels. These actions ranged from efforts to remove the special counsel and to reverse the effect of the attorney general's recusal to the attempted use of official power to limit the scope of the investigation to direct and indirect contacts with witnesses with the potential to influence their testimony. Viewing the acts collectively can help to illuminate their significance. For example, the president's direction to McGahn to have the special counsel removed was followed almost immediately by his direction to Lewandowski to tell the attorney general to limit the scope of the Russia investigation to prospective election interference only, a temporal connection that suggests that both acts were taken with a related purpose with respect to the investigation. In considering the full scope of the conduct we investigated, the president's actions can be divided into two distinct phases, reflecting a possible shift in the president's motives. In the first phase, before the president fired Comey, the president had been assured by the FBI that the FBI had not opened an investigation of him personally. The president deemed it critically important to make public that he was not under investigation. 
Soon after he fired Comey, however, the president became aware the investigators were conducting an obstruction of justice inquiry into his own conduct. That awareness marked a significant change in the president's conduct and the start of a second phase of action. The president launched public attacks on the investigation and individuals involved in it who could possess evidence adverse to the president. While in private, the president engaged in a series of targeted efforts to control the investigation. So, what do you guys think? Thinking back to the three, the three points needed for obstruction of justice was one of them was corrupt corruption or, or uh, corrupt intent, intent, corrupt intent, which we were saying it might be to protect his reputation versus some other motivation. But what you just read in that conclusion sounded to me like the damage to an investigation is done either way, regardless of what the person is intending or what their motivation is. Right. If a person's obstructing justice, it doesn't matter why they're right. obstructing justice. If they're obstructing justice, it's going to hurt the public's view of the justice system. It's going to cause injustice to occur. And that's what they're checking for. They don't really care why you're corrupting justice only or obstructing it, just whether obstruction took place or not. Okay. That pretty much covers the biggest part of volume two of the Mueller report. There's also some statutory defenses to the application of obstructive of justice provisions. Um, basically, there's like lawyer fight stuff. So the president's lawyers said, you know, the, the investigation is illegitimate because of this. And Mueller, the, the Mueller team, they, they do some lawyer jujitsu and like do some other stuff. And so there's like 30 pages of that kind of stuff at the back of volume two that I'm almost, in, I skimmed and then almost entirely skipped <laughs> just <laughs> because I can't get into that kind of stuff. And as far as, you know, again, this is lawyers talking to other lawyers and talking to the judge and that kind of stuff. It's not really very useful in terms of me reading it and understanding about what the president did or didn't do. So I'm going to skip those 30 pages. And that pretty much takes us to the end of the report. There are a few appendices. Appendix A I want to talk about. AJ, did you happen to look at the appendices? There's A, B, C, D. I think... They're, they're actually really cool, all on their own. Yeah. I remember when I was reading Volume 1, I started on my own writing a list of like all the names I encountered and who they were. And then like two days before our recording, I, f I found the appendix. It's like exactly that. Like okay. lists every person. Yeah. that I think that's Appendix B. B, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, But no, I haven't really looked at the appendix. Just at the end of the report, Appendix A is the original order from Rod Rosenstein establishing the special counsel. So that's a one-page appendix, nice and easy. Appendix B is a glossary. It not only has like a persons of interest, <laughs> uh, it starts with Aras Agalarov, <laughs> somebody whose name literally is first letter A, <laughs> first name, first letter A of the last name. And then it goes all the way down to Zara Zachariah. Close. <laughs> <laughs> Zayed El Nayan. Wow. No, it's Mohammed bin Zayed El Nayan. He's the last person, several pages. And then there's actually a pretty sweet glossary of all the entities and organizations involved. So all the different groups, including like the hacking groups, the Russian government groups, all the different groups. And there's even an index of acronyms. So DCCC and FBI and PTT and ODNI, all these acronyms are also defined in Appendix B. Appendix C is really fun. The Mueller investigation was trying to get Donald Trump to sit down for an interview, and there was no way that was going to happen. It took a few months, but the president finally declined. However, he did issue a series of written 
responses to a number of questions that the Mueller team gave to to the president's office. So, you know, it was written it was all written by lawyers. <laughs> but if you're interested in finding out, you can see what questions the Mueller investigation had for the president and what the president's lawyers' responses were to those questions. And that's what Appendix C is all about. For my money, Appendix D is the most interesting of all the appendices, and I'll tell you why. Tell us why. In a second. Okay. So Appendix D is the list of the special counsel's office transferred, referred, and completed cases. One of our goals was to answer the question of did Mueller do his job? Did he fulfill the task that was required? Right. Well, at the end, at the termination of the special counsel's investigation, there were a number of threads that were still open. So there were a number of transfers based on that. The special counsel's office has concluded its investigation into links and coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. Certain matters assigned to the office by the acting attorney general have not fully concluded as of the date of this report. Uh, So they just transferred. So there were 11 investigations of individuals, both in the United States and Russia, that were transferred from the special counsel's office to other offices. So the Southern District of New York took over some of these cases. The Eastern District of Virginia took over some. Uh, They were kind of distributed to other prosecutors around to, to carry on these investigations. So even though the special counsel's investigation ends, some of that work still continues. So one question directly on that is, if I understand correctly, there are limitations on the president's ability to pardon. And part of that is that they can pardon national or federal crimes, but not crimes in states. Right. All right. I guess I'm, I'm also kind of curious as to whether any of those referrals could have been crimes that the president committed. Is there, is there any... Could he pardon himself? Well, no, it's more, could he have committed a crime that the Mueller investigation referred to a state Oh, well, or a jurisdiction that is not federal? I gotcha. Possibly. Um, in this section of the report, it lists the names of those trials. So the of those trials that were transferred, of those investigations that were transferred, one is United States versus B. John Rafekian and Camille Ekim... Alptekin, <laughs> forgive my pronunciation, United States v. Michael Flynn, United States v. Richard Gates, United States v. Internet Research Agency and others, United States v. Konstantin Kalimnik. So there's one that's there's one that's redacted. It says harm to ongoing matter. We don't know what that one's about. So that could be about the president. But uh, no, there's two of them that are redacted. So maybe one of those is still against the president. We don't know. Okay. Right. Okay. So in addition to the transfers, there were a number of referrals. So during the course of the investigation, the office periodically identified evidence of potential criminal activity that was outside the scope of the special counsel's jurisdiction. The transfers were things that were within the special counsel's jurisdiction, but they just ran out of time, so they gave it to other people. Referrals were instances where they discovered evidence of criminal activity, but it didn't have to do with the special counsel's remit, and so he gave it to other people. And so these ones are almost entirely redacted. Mm. Harm to ongoing matter, harm to ongoing matter. Yeah, and there are are 14 of them. So there were 11 transfers and 14 referrals. And we don't know what those are, (laughs) Um, but they're still still ongoing. Like they're all redacted and they all say harm to ongoing matter. So there are 14 more cases that are still out there pending. So totally we have 25 (laughs) that, that 
special counsel created 25 prosecutions or investigations. And then the final section is completed prosecutions. In three cases prosecuted by the special counsel's office, the defendants have completed or are about to complete their terms of imprisonment. And that's United States v. George Papadopoulos, United States v. Alex Vandersvon, and the United States versus Richard Pinedo. You have 11 transfers, 14 referrals, and three people who are already in jail or have already served their time and have been released. So that is seems like a lot. Seems like a lot of work. Special counsels put in. Right. So one thing I think I mentioned in part one, uh, in episode one, on this was that even though this report didn't give us the the big like takedown of Donald Trump that I'd sort of been hoping for, yeah. <laughs> um, there are a lot of ongoing matters here, and it may not still take down Donald Trump, but I find comfort in knowing that like crimes were revealed people are going to court for it and are getting sentenced and serving sentences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one thing you have to say for people who want to criticize the Mueller investigation and the Mueller report, it did produce outcomes. It wasn't just a bunch of hot air. You have these many investigations, 25 investigations that are still going. You have three people that have been sent to jail. Right. So I, I have slightly mixed feelings about it. So this investigation was kicked off via the Rod Rosenstein letter. Is that right? That's right where Rod Rosenstein's a political appointee. Is that right? Correct. It seems like there's a lot of... Go ahead. I was just going to say he was a holdover from the Obama years. Okay. seems like there's just sort of a lot of potential for abuse, particularly when it comes to these matters that are outside of the direct scope of the investigation. Like on the one hand, do I want bad people to find the appropriate just fate? Yes. On the other hand... I think we're all bad people in some regards (laughs) (laughs) and, and and you can find things and you can probably find things on uh, almost anybody. Um, And so I am concerned about the potential for investigations like this to creep pretty far outside of their bounds and end up just kind of targeting people because they're your political enemy, not because they are true threats to national security. Okay. I think that's a great point. And it reminds me of something I looked up earlier just for my own curiosity was most of these people involved were appointed by somebody and they have their own political affiliations. Um, so I looked up a lot of the people involved to see like who, like who nominated Jeff Sessions or who nominated Rod Rosenstein or uh, Robert Mueller. And it turns out like Robert Mueller is a lifelong registered Republican. And I think he was appointed by so he was appointed this position by Rod Rosenstein, but I believe he used to be FBI director. Yeah, he was the FBI director, and I think it was George, one of the one of the Bushes appointed him to the FBI director. And then, like Jeff Sessions was appointed by I think also George Bush. No, he was no, he was a senator. Oh, okay, I might have. He was appointed by Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was appointed. You're right. Yeah, he was appointed to this position by Trump. And James Comey also was a lifelong Republican, but he was appointed by Obama. So. Th- there is definitely the potential for political abuse, but I think it's important to point out that not all of the people involved are like Democrats appointed by Obama or something like that. So. Not at all. No. Yeah. Oh my God, there's just so much we could have gone into. I know. Like we hardly talked about Michael Cohen. His, his story is so interesting. Like he went to jail for lying to Congress to protect Trump about the stupid Trump Tower. <laughs> not even that important. Right. Anyway, 
getting, yeah. getting off subject. We should have a moment of silence for all of the topics we didn't have time to cover. <laughs> there's so much in volume one. There's so much in volume two. But oh my gosh, I think we had a good strategy to cover the introductions, the executive summaries, the conclusions, and like some of the juicier details yeah, from the main sections because there's just there's just too much intricate detail to do in a podcast episode. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you guys, guys this before we wrap it up. Do you feel like Robert S. Mueller III completed the obligation as laid out in that order from Rod Rosenstein? Did he investigate the connections between the Trump campaign and Russia and any other related matters that came about? Do you think he did a good enough job? I think I'm pretty satisfied. I don't know. I don't know. I think he did the best he could. Um, I think the investigation was pretty what's a good word, like curtailed by the the DOJ's sort of stances on indicting a sitting president, for example. Right. I think he did the best he could, probably. Right. Yeah, I guess I'm satisfied. Okay. I'm just disappointed. I got you. <laughs> but that's like your own motivated reason. That's my own personal motivated reasoning, yeah. Well, I would say that it seemed like a very good investigation. I'm very glad that so much of this information is out as far as what it means next for us as a people, as Americans. Like this information, it's it would be better if more people were not more knowledgeable about it. We're living in a world of fake news, where it's like a talisman, a protective amulet. When you hear something you don't like, or something that is derogatory towards your side of things or your way of looking at it, you say it's fake news, and you can entirely dismiss it. And it's something that's used to shut down conversation and communication. And I think that it's important for us to spend the time to educate ourselves to become knowledgeable and have a better better resistance to fake news and being able to talk to people who who use that and you can say no it's not fake news there's real evidence like i read this stuff it, as far as as far as uh, what what does this mean for us as a people like my opinion is trump is going to be there until the end of his first term and as a group as a people not not atheists but just people who love america we need to to work hard to use power that we have because we can't we can't count on Robert Mueller to save us. We can't count on the Congress to save us. We as a people, we have to save ourselves. Anything else? I think that's a pretty good <laughs> a pretty good sentiment to end on. Um, okay. Well this has been exhausting guys. This has been <laughs> um, Yeah. Anything else you want to share, AJ? No, I agree. It's been a lot of work. I think obviously for you especially. <laughs> yeah. I've got a bit more to do. Chelsea. Thank you guys for spending so much time digging into the report. Yeah, absolutely. Educating me and other listeners. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate you taking questions. Yeah. Thanks this for good. Being, thanks for being here, Chelsea. Thanks for being here twice to record this thing. Thank you, AJ. Thank you. My pleasure. And folks at home, thank you very much for listening. We'd love to get your feedback. Feel free to write us an email. Podcast at secularhub.org. If you have anything you want to say to me, AJ or Chelsea. And uh, I guess that's about it. All right, thank you.